0: You know, there were some stickers that were overstocked. Sticker overstock is about an inch tall, so I figured that was not worth doing anything about. The labor to resolve that is more expensive than just like waiting for the passage of time for that stack to reduce. Yes, we can send overstock stickers to shows, but then you would have to be standing behind the political positionings of the unpopular stickers at these shows. Happy to like, do that. Don't blame me. I voted for Gary Coleman. <laughs> it,
1: <laughs> this is my favorite podcast episode ever. Hi,
0: I'm Joe Beale, the founder and CEO of Microcosm Publishing. I'm also the author of A People's Guide to Publishing, which distills what I've learned from selling millions of books over the past 28 years.
2: I'm Ellie Blue, the vice president of Microcosm. We started this podcast to share what we've learned with newer publishers so you can learn from our mistakes. Or maybe you just want to learn about the publishing industry.
0: I've been invited many times to learn about the topic of like, how do we make publishing environmentally friendly? And that's, you know, and, and it's kind of like held up as this like ideal that is impossible and thus like kind of hand wringy as in like it's aspirational, but just not possible. But the reality is it's actually pretty simple. And, and I don't know why this isn't addressed more directly, but the way to make publishing environmentally friendly is to eliminate waste by printing the correct amount of books close to home geographically. So like, rather than printing too many in China and shipping them around the world, you would print the correct amount in your region, and print more when you need more, rather than this kind of, you know, the usual way it's done, which is, as anybody who has worked in a warehouse can tell you, with every single book, you either have too many or too few, and there isn't really a whole lot of in between there. So, and in some cases, as we'll see here, the the difference between too many and too few can be very dramatic um so fortunately incidentally not coincidentally this is also the economically responsible and the ergonomic choice because it's you know you're not having money tied up in inventory and you're you have a walkable warehouse um oh yeah thank you lance for bringing this topic to the forefront um and so you know so like this issue also affects feng shui you know and ideally you would have space for books that actually sell so it's kind of a win-win-win-win-win but i do think you know i haven't entirely gotten to the bottom of why people are so resistant to best practices here industry-wide you know so what causes all of this waste in publishing now that we've solved this within the first three minutes. So the problem is caused by a culmination of four factors. Most books experience 75% of their sales within their first year. And that's just kind of like the way the industry has been built. And it's kind of the way that people know how to drum up buzz and enthusiasm that that's kind of the consequence. Publishers desperately do not want to run out of inventory during those like crucial first 90 days of a window. Publishers do not want, they just don't have a mechanism to predict or measure how large the print run should be. And most people will just honestly say, oh, I just guess, you know, like I really have no idea. So I just guess, and then that is what we print. And you're like, well, surely there's a better way to do it than that. And in the past three years, warehouses dramatically increased storage costs. So those kind of four factors together. So again, it's that you know you don't wanna run out of books. You're gonna have most of your sales immediately. That's also like you're gonna miss out on sales if you don't have inventory in your first 90 days and it's super expensive. To have outsourced storage now or it's more expensive than it used to be let's say so after a year the distributor calculates how much overstock they have in their warehouse and that's based on sales of the previous year so that's like hard data it's a little bit buggy but it is based on hard data and then they begin billing the publisher for each copy stored beyond what they would consider the reasonable amount. And that's like usually another year of inventory. So because of that first 90 day period where all the activity is happening by month 13, you're gonna watch that, what a year of inventory looks like, just drop off dramatically. And so instantly you went from having like a comfortable amount of stock to having way too much inventory and you're suddenly getting bills. And sometimes those bills can be rather scary you know as we will see in a few examples later on so it's like a ticking clock you know if you for those of us that experience anxiety it's like a great example of that it's like kind of like watching your cell phone run out of battery as you're like about to hit an appointment you know an important appointment or something so um And it can be pretty dramatic. Um, The part of the important backstory here is a seemingly unrelated court case in 1979, where Thor Power Tool tried to argue with the IRS that their inventory was less valuable than the cost to replace it. And the IRS took them to court and Thor Power Tool lost. And now it became u.s law that your inventory is valued at your the cost to replace it so that essentially screwed publishers because all of a sudden you had to pay taxes on all of your inventory as well so every year everything that's left you have to pay taxes on because that's an asset you know and so within two years let's say if you have too much between taxes and storage fees you're essentially buying another print run if you have overstocked in the first place and so you might be apprehensive to get rid of it immediately but pretty quickly you're going to be like oh maybe we should have gotten rid of that um so the effect of this is that publishers are incentivized to get rid of overstock immediately because you know it's the ticking clock and the bill and all that. So, Thor Power Tool losing to the IRS was likely the biggest boon ever for the creation of the remaindering industry. In 1979, um, there isn't a lot of documentation about it prior to that. Um, essentially, like you know, obviously overstock existed before thor power tool v. irs in 1979 but we just don't have a lot of you know the it di- the industry didn't exist in the organized way that it does now so remaindering is a liquidation process that publishers use to avoid these storage fees and taxes um in most cases these are the books that have slowed down over time but you know it's more likely, as the book market became increasingly saturated, these are just the books that were overprinted in the first place, especially from smaller publishers. You know, the smaller publishers are the ones that tend to bite off more than they can chew and are, like, more ambitious than their reality, whereas the larger publishers will have, like, corporate policy where they're like, we purge this at this point because of XYZ, and we've determined this is the best practice. So it's kind of like you know, six of one, half dozen of the other. And, you know, neither of them are wrong. It's just more that, like, this problem can be stemmed in the first place. So we're going to take a look at two fairly epic case studies. So the first one is uh, a book that I posted on Slack, I believe last year, maybe in 2022. It's been kind of a while. It's called Imaginable how to see the future coming and feel ready for anything, even things that seem impossible today, which is sort of a you know, ominous and ironic name for a book that is about to be massively remaindered, that it was indeed imaginable. But imaginable is the third book by Jane McGonigal, whose first book uh, for Penguin sold about 75,000 copies. Penguin also published her second book, but that only sold twelve thousand copies. Which, like for most people at most publishers in the industry, twelve thousand is like a great number, even if it's not as great as seventy-five thousand. And so, for her third book, Jane was picked up by the Independent Press Spiegel and Growl, who I am probably severely mispronouncing your probably French name for which I apologize. So for Imaginable, her publisher highlighted the sales of her first book and boasted that the first printing of Imaginable would also be 75,000 copies, which is like maybe too ambitious. Like ambition is good, but maybe this is not the best way to be ambitious. So this sort of bluster is meant to come across as, you know, showing how seriously a publisher is taking this book and how much they're investing in the new title. So it's like a way to kind of like create buzz. So you're like, they're doing 75,000 as the first printing. So we should probably get, you know, seven times the amount we would have normally purchased. And you know, part of this is that you're essentially incentivizing over ordering, you're trying to get on the New York Times list by getting people to stock up too much. And then you sort of know that because of that you're going to get a lot of heavy returns, but you know, where the stores and the wholesalers will like buy more than they can sell and they'll just return the rest. And this is like kind of a time, you know, honored strategy for some unknown reason. But I think it's partially because, like, for an author like that that's had previous successes, it's just like another way to, you know, make it a key title to essentially try to get extra oomph behind it. So um, at the same time, it's understood that first printing 75,000 copies doesn't actually mean 75,000, it's almost always an exaggeration. So and you know, it we were once trained um, about 10 years back about the there's actual like proportional mathematics to the exaggerations. So if, if you say I'm printing a hundred thousand first printing, that actually only means like forty thousand. So in this case, it probably means something more akin to twenty-five thousand when you save seventy-five thousand. And again, it's kind of like, if everybody is in on this, then like, why don't you just use the real numbers? But like, I'm not here to write the law, I'm just here to report on the law. So this is a weird thing that people created complicit, you know, dishonest science, but like, it's kind of like what the industry operates on. So we've kind of just avoided like announcing print runs as a marketing tool because, you know, it's like, if everybody knows it's dishonest, is it actually getting you where you want to go? Would be my first question. So um, book scan figures show lifetime sales of 10,000 copies of Imaginable, and only 1,100 of those were sold in the second year of publication. So that's, you know, that means that 13 months after publication, 13,000 copies were offered on remainder auction. Meaning, this is, you know, they kind of showed their hand. They like gave us the entire picture because we now know what's sold and we know what they're desperately trying to get rid of, which means the guess was correct. They did print 25,000. They sold 9,000 in the first year. It sold 1,100 in the second year. The publisher can only keep eleven hundred copies at their distributor without paying for storage. That number will decrease every year. They were motivated to get rid of most of the print run for less than they paid for them, very likely. I mean, an auction in this case, it's not like when you auction off your like collectible painting. It's more like you know that people aren't paying their usual price less discount. You're saying like what about a dollar? Oh, 50 cents. Oh, okay. 36 cents. Okay. Well, if you'll take them all, it's kind of the way that conversation goes. So, based on these figures, it seems safe to assume that the publisher probably lost money on this book. You know, between the author's advance, which is based on anticipated copies sold, you pay for design, editorial, and development, and you pay for the cost of printing. So, like all told, these probably fully negated the revenues from the book. And it seems that the unconsidered factor is that flooding the market with 13,000 copies on auction is likely going to undermine their ability to sell even that 1,100 copies per year, that it's gonna like further just drive it into the ground. So, you know, if people weren't willing to pay full price, you're gonna watch the you know sort of the uh, price as determinant factor for sale doctrine come into effect like you know so what you'll what you'll see is that secondhand sites will become flooded with the book and then it will be you know, half price, less than half price significantly, you know, and you've probably seen this for books like all over the internet. This is kind of like what happens. So um, to me, the imaginable takeaway with imaginable is that the boasting of a big print run almost always backfires. By claiming to go big, you're, you know, you're just taking bigger risks and you're more likely to lose big unless, you know, And even if you have a big author like this who has done well in the past, you know, there's a reason that Penguin is letting that book go, you know, because like Penguin is the bigger publisher. They sort of saw the writing on the wall and probably said, okay, well, she sold 12,000 of her second book. She's probably going to sell about 12,000 of her third book, maybe not even that. So, you know, we can let this one go. Because part of the other problem of this scenario is that Jane is probably retained by a fantastic literary rights agency whose job is to get her paid as much as she can possibly be paid for her next book. And having your first book sell 75,000 is fantastic. So that puts you in a really good place for your second book and then to some degree your third book, but not necessarily your fourth book. So, you know, this kind of brings us to my biggest and most important point is that, you know, when I was doing the research for the People's Guide to Publishing book, one of my mentors told me that the number one mistake they see over and over and over, and, you know, honestly, they actually couldn't think of a second mistake after I, I probed around this. They, they they came back and said the only mistake I see over and over in publishing is people printing too many. Like it's it's such a catastrophic mistake. It's essentially the only way to put your company out of business. You because every other mistake you make once and you learn from. Whereas this one, for some reason, publishers just keep over printing and you know this has been consistent and true for when i've consulted for publishers is they just cannot get away from like oh but we just print 5000 because we know our books are really good and we know that that's what we want to sell so we just think that will catch up with us instead of us catching up with like the amount we're actually selling so you know which brings me to our second case study so in 2007 Um, We printed 3,000 copies of Raleigh Briggs' first book, Make Your Place, and it was, you know, a cute book, not unlike many of the other books we were publishing at the time, and, you know, we did many drafts of cover revisions with her, you know, because we really kind of saw this could, you know, it could be we didn't really think of it as like anything more than like just the book we were doing that month. But you know, we wanted it to have a good cover in some of the initial drafts, like they looked like children's books and they weren't really right for what we were doing. Um and you know, this was kind of about the time we were getting more serious about that. Um so we sold out of those first three thousand quickly, and then we reprinted five thousand more. And, you know, for most books, this is about like the extent of their sales life. You know, this is you you do the second printing when you sell out the first printing that fast, and then you sort of watch it slow down. And then what you have left of that 5,000 is enough for the next year. But then things slow down a little bit. So then what you have left the following year is enough. Like, and then it sort of like works that way in perpetuity. So you're never stuck with too many but you also don't have too few and you're also not in a position where you need to reprint but in this case few things prepared us for when the mom a mom blogger who which was this was a very popular kind of phenomenon at the time that moms blogging about momming was a very it's hard to really understand what was captivating the internet around this issue in 2008 but it was She wrote about the book and just gave it this glowing, like this is the best thing ever. This is great for like cleaning my house. This is great for all kinds of projects. And simultaneously Boing Boing wrote about the book and tested a bunch of the recipes and created, you know, really in depth, but very unquotable sort of, you know, what would be like a feature magazine piece in the era of magazines about the book. And the book had been out for about a year at this point. So we were absolutely not prepared for this. And we had both of these reviews come out and we were like, Oh, that's nice. That's pretty cool. And, you know, I went to bed and I woke up the next morning and there were 300 orders on our website for the book. And I was like, Oh, isn't that cool? Like, we're going to sell 300 copies of this book. That's great. And then it was just like every minute there'd be like another order and another order. And and then I realized that our distributor at the time had failed to propagate the data for this title. So the book was not available anywhere except on our own website. You couldn't buy it on Amazon or anywhere else. So um, it was an interesting sort of confluence of i wouldn't say problems but like (laughs) events let's say um so we were getting all of the mail orders and our distributor apologized profusely and they're like oh no no that's okay this has actually been pretty great and um and so you know we rushed a reprint of ten thousand copies as fast as we could and back then in you know 15 years ago you could get books in 2 to 3 weeks so that wasn't really a big deal and you know this kind of repeated a few times and this was enough to get people talking about the book and telling their friends so it wasn't just these two reviews anymore it was kind of like everybody was like you know the, and it this book was like maybe our first book ever that was intergenerational where it would be like grandmother and granddaughter and their mom in between them, like all three of them could appreciate the same book because of the way it was like contemporary, but also like 70s-esque. And so we had never really done that before successfully. And we had never really tried to do that before. Um, and then, so for her, you know, we, we went back to the author and we said, hi, would you like to write a second book? Because your book is actually doing really well. And, you know, Raleigh is very modest. So um, she, like, kind of reluctantly accepted. And two years later, she had finished writing and compiling and researching what is now Make It Last, which uh, came out in 2012. And, you know, like most publishers at that time, we carefully evaluated how many copies to print and we really weren't sure because you know we had this book which at now you know we had sold about 80,000 copies of make your place at that point and so we were like okay so if that one sold 80,000 like obviously this one you know it's going to sell more than 3,000 and you know it's all those things we considered and talked about earlier but you know there's a wisdom that i learned About two years later, that ninety percent of sequel books sell ten percent of what the previous book did. So, like, whenever something has like you know number two on the cover, you're gonna sell ninety percent less than the first book did. Which you know I didn't know. I just thought like, oh, people that like her books and like her work are gonna buy this book too. So um, you know we we thought, okay, 10,000, that's like a reasonable number. Like we could probably sell 10,000 fairly easily. And, you know, it wasn't like entirely wrong, you know, it's gonna, and and then this went out in our distributor's catalog. Um, We received interest from the producer of Anderson Cooper's daytime talk show, which I cannot remember the title of, but that was like one of those shocking moments where we were like, she's going to be on television she's going to be on anderson cooper like that's so wild and um the author of course is a you know is a nice young woman who like writes about cleaning her house without using chemicals and like wounds and how to you know make things that you love last longer so she was obviously way too shy to go on television and was kind of like do i have to because she was rather horrified so um but nonetheless we asked her to send a reel of herself, you know, to, to like, so they could see what she would be like on camera. And she did that. And then I began to remember how she had excused herself from joining us on our 2010 tour at the last minute, citing that she's really a homebody and not really suited to life on the road, which like, to be fair, you know, that's very much who she is, you know. So, um, and, you know, this is an author who is very special. You know, she didn't have an email address when we, like, signed her first book. You know, she would mail us master pages when we started working together, which was really, you know, like, probably is wilder now than it was then. But, you know, to this day, she doesn't use social media accounts. You know, she's, like, lives a quiet life at home. And, you know, she has a cell phone and an email now. but. It's a different, you know, she's like not embracing technology open heartedly, but uh, this was still no matter because after extensive pressure to come out as gay on his own talk show, Anderson Cooper outed himself in an email to his colleagues while doing off grid reporting in Africa. So like he waited until he would be unreachable to confirm the rumors about him, which is, you know a probably very difficult personal choice and then cnn aired a nine-minute segment where they examined and like rated how well he did it coming out and like the role of reporters coming out in 2012 and you know just things that seemed like horrendously inappropriate and weird to do but um and then his televisions network time warner promptly did not review his show for a third season, and they cited soft ratings as the reason for that, but it really very much was clear what the actual reasons were. And so Raleigh was off the hook. She was not gonna be on Anderson's show because Anderson's show would not exist anymore, which is a bummer. But um, I, to be fair, I've never watched the show, so maybe the show wasn't any good. But so, back in microcosm land we started to panic a little about make it last so we started reaching out to people who had reviewed her book's favorite past most people passed on it you know it's the idea of that you don't you know reviewing the like oh this person that you really liked the book of has a new book it sounds really good but it's not always compelling Um, The vegans didn't like it because it wasn't entirely vegan, you know, so those reviewers wouldn't touch it. Um, And then our distributors said that they were getting sort of a cold reception because the cover didn't work in their opinion. You know, the mom blogger that had like popularized it in the first place, you know, she wrote a fairly soft review that sold about 30 copies, you know, versus like the tens of thousands she had sold previously. And so that was what it was. We um, sold twenty two hundred copies of "Make It Last" in the first year of publication and a thousand in the second year. So that's, you know, kind of not not ninety percent less but you know compared to we had sold about 80,000 of make your place in the first 5 years so that was pretty disappointing to sell you know 3 3200 versus 80,000 and um that is uh no Annalisa that is not overstocked in portland but I love that you asked that question um and there's a happy ending to this story so hold on to your hats by 2016, we were only selling about 500 per year, and that was about the point when we were like, "Okay, this is like kind of gonna peter out." Like, I think at one point we had seven years of inventory on that book, and we were like, oh, "What are we gonna do?" But fast forward to today, and there's only two entire boxes left in our whole warehouse. What changed? well like we stuck with the book you know we knew the book was evergreen in that it was how it was developed and like what the value of the book was we had learned from our mistakes we designed a new cover as far back as 2014 um, which we will now publish in a new edition this fall and so you know it did take 12 years which is not a nice even round number like 10 years for a second edition but you know it's like we know the content of the book is good it was just like sort of the way that we had packaged it and handled it that wasn't quite perfect so you know the fundamental problem wasn't with the book itself it was with the way that we handled it you know the packaging um, but you know the other thing is that like once you publish a book even if the packaging isn't quite right or the cover isn't quite right the minute you change it, that's when people will come to you and be like, but I liked it the old way. You know, and that's sort of the way that these things go. Like we um when we record the Unf your brain audiobook, we you know, we didn't intend for to sell millions of those. So we didn't put as much time or effort into the production as we would have had we known that. And then when I went back to the uh audiobook distributor and I said, like, should we re-record it? They said, oh, no, don't do that. Because the minute you mess with it, you're going to ruin it. So even if you make it better, people aren't going to see it that way. They're going to see it as different. And they're going to be attached the way that it used to be. So, you know, in this case, it's like we're we're evolving it just a bit. And this was the same way with her other book, Fix Your Clothes. As soon as we changed the cover for the second edition, you know, stores were like, oh, I love the old cover. <laughs> like it wasn't working. So, you know, that's sort of, you know, people get emotionally attached to the decisions that you make. And that's part of the issue, too. But also, we just weren't reaching the right retailers with that cover, with that distribution setup, with, you know, how we were doing outreach. So, when we took back our distribution in 2018, sales of this title increased immediately. Like that was kind of the turning point to be like, oh, we're longer overstocked. Oh, we're going to run out. Oh, okay, wow, that's, we went from having seven years to having four years to having six months, you know, and that's kind of a wild shift. So, um, you know, we know our bread and butter are sort of like these small independent retailers who can like give a book a little place on the shelf and sell a few copies each month you know and then we have thousands of stores like that and that's kind of what works and so that's what we design a book like that for and then that's sort of like a you know that's the the three-legged stool where like everybody benefits from the way the book is developed so everybody is like incentivized to do their part you know the author us the retailer you know any other partner that's involved (laughs) and so um Back in the remaindering world where make it last will never be experienced, um, there's a few dozen different remainder dealers, mostly in the United States, but there's a handful in the UK as well. Um, they review books that are available on auction, which are normally sold as whole lots, meaning you have to buy them all. So if somebody has 3,800 copies of something, and you give a price that would be acceptable to you it's to buy every one of those copies you know not to buy six or four or you know a hundred or whatever so from there those copies are shipped to that uh remainder dealer's warehouse and then they're broken down into smaller quantities and you know the natural question is like what happens to those books well most of them end up for sale on amazon where they you know underbid the publisher's price. And there's a chain uh, that doesn't exist in Oregon, but does exist in Ohio called Half Price Books. that has a few hundred stores and they are pretty guaranteed to get most anything on remainder that they believe they can sell. And then they sell it for, as you might have guessed, half price. The author is not paid royalties on these sales. And that is usually what happens when, you know, eventually the book like works its way down 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 in terms of price until you can get copies for a penny and that's you know on any kind of like secondary retail market you know any kind of places that you know these books are sold and there's lots of you know abe books thrift books those are sort of popular places and a lot of these places also will resell on amazon and you know it's it's like the stuff that used to be in people's basements is now like finding its way to the secondary market, similarly to like a used bookstore model. Um, And so, you know, and this is the, like kind of what popularized Amazon was the idea that, you know, books were overpriced and, you know, you could really get anything for a penny if you were patient enough And you could buy like copies sent for review. You could buy, you know, any number of random things for next to nothing. And, you know, this was probably one of the greatest harms to the industry that, you know, people would then think of books as like something that didn't retain value as an informational product, you know, which is like really the point of the book is that it's, you know, a, you're you're trusting a series of respected authorities to relay information to you. And then this was the major shift in uh, the younger generation of the last 10, I mean, maybe even five years where people said, no, it's like, if we continually undervalue the book, then nobody is gonna make very good books and I want books to be good So that was when we saw people were supporting things at what they actually need to cost to make a book. And then, you know, now you've seen where you can have like the $45 hardcover and people will pay for it because, you know, they like want this item and not just in a theoretical sense, like they're really willing to, you know, open their wallet, you know. So, regardless of the value in the free market, once a book goes on remainder, that's usually the beginning of the end of its life. You know, there's not really a lot of ways to write that ship after that point. Um, It'll gradually reach every secondhand seller and every remainder dealer as they sell smaller and smaller lots to each other. And then they sell them into these book fairs in Asia and the Middle East. And, you know, there's like famous book fairs in Singapore and Malaysia where you can just buy all this stuff and, you know there's like entire secondary markets for bibles the same way because you know like the bible is the most overprinted book on earth you know so it's like it's the most printed book but it is not the best selling book and so something has to become of all of those bibles and it is largely the remainder market um so essentially the books get kicked around the not it pile until they all end up somewhere and you know, and you'll see cases too where, um, you know, sometimes it'll be like a, an over, you know, Costco or Walmart or Target or Barnes and Noble will buy too many, and then those will be returned, and then those will end up on the remainder market sometimes, and that's similar but a little bit different, you know, in that um, it won't destroy the value of the book because there's a fairly limited number comprising, you know, a minority of the printing rather than like enough to really just drive the price into the ground. So, you know, the the primary thing that, you know, you may recall that earlier this year we offered some books that we had published over 10 years ago on Remainder, and most of those were passed on, you know, so, you know, what happens to the books that can't even sell on Remainder, such as those books, which are still in our warehouse because it's, the situation is not so dire that we needed to get them out of here. It was more like we have too many. So let's see if anybody is interested. However, the, the reason that all of the buyers passed on those titles surprised me. The primary reason is that most vendors warehouse in the East Coast or the Midwest. So the cost of freighting from Portland was prohibitive. There's essentially only two buyers who buy on the West Coast really in whole quantities, and neither one was interested. And so one of the key advantages of remaindering, as much as a lot of it is disadvantages, other than you know, you're cleaning up a mess, essentially, like you're like sweeping the parking lot. Is that the buyer pays for shipping? So, you know, because it's essentially like you're not making a lot or you're not gonna make anything in the sale. So the cost of shipping then becomes a factor for the buyer rather than for the seller when they're deciding what to buy. So, you know, for example, like we sold a lot of books from out of cleveland that were overstocked there because you know those those actually didn't even leave ohio they just went to columbus where there is a remaindering warehouse so you know that was easy that was sort of a no-brainer for them um but you know there's other reasons that you know obviously remainder dealers just cannot buy everything so in some cases it's that you know the book's development is just too ethereal like what is the book who is it for you know there's times where like i cannot figure this out where i like look at the book and research it and i'm like i cannot figure out what this is supposed to be or it's so misdeveloped that it looks like one thing but it's actually another thing and that can be like a fun case study but you know and then you know sometimes like a book about current events is you know the events are no longer current so um you know it's like not written as a history book so it's simply not relevant anymore and they can see the writing on the wall or like a movie tie-in book will cause the previous edition to go on remainder you know things like that Um, you know in cases where like the world changed but the book didn't and then in other cases all demand sometimes is just exhausted like the book like lived out its natural life and it's you know everybody that's going to read it has read it you know so like That can be anything from like a business book where like thinking has changed to like, you know, or like a novel that has like a natural sales plateau that goes up and goes down. Um, There was, however, one publisher where all 39 titles on their offering had one to two stars as their rating with numerous disappointed customers offering deep exposition about what exactly they hated about each book. So, you know it wasn't difficult to figure out why those books were on remainder or why nobody wanted them. But um, you know, if a book cannot even be sold for pennies on the dollar, what happens to it? It becomes what is known as pulped, which is the term for book reincarnation. And so these are books that are literally ground back into paper and then turned into new books. So, you know, in some cases you can get like pennies for, The value of the material, which, you know, like the recycling money, as if you were like a metal scrapper. But, you know, with the volume of book waste in the system, most of the time you're just happy to not have to pay anymore. You know, you're just happy to have it be like a one and done where you're like, oh, you'll take them, I'll get them out of here. I'm tired of paying for them. And, you know, that's sad, but, you know, sometimes it's for the best so now that we know the horrors of waste caused by overprinting we're gonna have a little reminder about how to prevent it so you know isn't the system the solution simply to print fewer and reprint as needed it's a complicated yes but mostly it's just yes the hype machine is really powerful and you can't exactly claim that you printed a hundred thousand if you actually only printed three thousand because the advance orders are going to wipe you out before you even begin shipping the book to actual readers so you need some amount of substantiation for claims like that and you know most publishers struggle with marketing and connecting their ambition and their emotional attachment to each book to the reality of the marketplace so you know as such they overprint because they're really excited about the book, you know, or they're, they think the book is really cool or good or, you know, things like that. And I remember how difficult it was when the market first saturated and, you know, we had to reduce, we used to print 4,000 as a low baseline for everything. And then, you know, when that was no longer tenable, that was, you know, that was really emotionally difficult to be like, oh, okay, we cannot, just print 4000 of everything as a baseline like we have to actually consider this and you know our audience will not buy everything that we produce so you know and it took me really a full year to accept that and adjust to it you know because you know the first year I thought like we just had a fluke year you know but that was not what was happening you know now I realize that having better tools to plan ahead is the solution so, you know, we give ourselves a better sense of what's actually happening and when to pull the trigger on the reprint. You know, you don't want to wait too long or the interest will wane, but you don't want to reprint too soon because then you risk returns exposure or demand slowing. So, you know, what happened when the in the case of Grow, we printed 5,000, we sold 5,000. It was 2 months before publication, so we printed 10,000 more. And then we got two thousand more returned, so we we didn't need to reprint at all. But the initial orders were so substantial that we thought we did, you know. And so that that can be a difficult, though exciting at the time, thing to have happen. Um, and you know, it's it's kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't type situation. And you know, most publishers don't have the tools like we do with Working Lit. You know, they just have to sort of deal with you know whatever is happening you know they have to kind of like shoot in the dark Um, you know they're blindly estimating print runs rather than using hard science so you know it is simple and it seems kind of silly but the answer to saving so many businesses dreams bank accounts the environment and headaches is to just print fewer copies of each book until you have enough data to make clear decisions and so that's really the you know the methodology we've moved into and you know emotionally difficult as it is it's much easier to hit reprint than it is to be like oh shit that book was not going to sell 5000 so you know utilize the information that's available to make the best choice based on conservative estimates And then you can predict the future and you know and it's also good for expectations when you like aim a little lower because when you aim too high and then you don't achieve that everybody's going to be bummed whereas if you aim a little lower and you reprint everybody's going to be excited because you then exceeded expectations instead of underperformed and you know even though those things are entirely like semantic you know um you know so it's like always like most problems are caused by just setting expectations too high in printing and otherwise, you know, and um, but so that is how we move away from material problems and resolve them.
2: I'm gonna ask a question on behalf of one of our staff that contacted me about it in case they're feeling too shy to ask themselves. Can you talk to us about Juggalo Country?
0: Um, Well, the Juggalo Country is sort of a different type of example um, the problem with Juggalo Country is that in the first printing, more than two thirds of the books had a peeling uh, varnish, so the you know it has the effect. Uh, you know, Powell's contacted us as the book came out, and they said um, the covers are coming off, and so you know we have that's why we have I think you know seventeen hundred or so of those. And, you know, we didn't have, like, that's not inventory, like, that's, like, we essentially send those out for free in the damages packs, you know, because that seemed to make more sense than just, like, throwing them all away, you know, it's a good book, it seemed more ethical to do that than to, you know, put more into the landfill when the book itself is good
1: did you just say that's not really inventory
0: yes because it's the replacement cost on it is zero those are the damages we so we have good copies too but we have a reasonable number of good copies so we have you know 600 or so of like actual copies that are saleable but we have you know 17 or 1800 damaged copies that are not saleable
1: yeah and it just it just i'm thinking like it affects but it affects lance's feng shui lance
0: has chimed in to say that they've been tucked away nicely they're all on an attic shelf far away from where i mean unless anybody is climbing in the rafters they're not gonna bump into those
1: does it would it hurt you to pulp them
0: we can just send out a few boxes you know at it you know periodically rather than pulping them and then they can be like read by people rather than you know like the consequences the same it's just like slower and you know and we don't need the space in the rafters if we did it would be a different story
1: what is sarah saying yes to
0: i think sarah does not want to pulp those books
1: as in yes it would hurt yeah I... i appreciate that you keep saying like the emotional aspects of it how they play into making business decisions and just like acknowledging that like Taylen and I have had conversations in our one-on-ones too about you know things that like we were talking about this XYZ is a business decision it's not an emotional decision or something so it's an interesting aspect of it
0: and so thank you for taking me to task for a what perhaps came across as an emotional decision but yeah this when I did consulting for other publishers it was that every single time it would be like you know i could look at it and figure it out and you know and it was almost always this was one of the biggest problems but then when you go to approaches to solve it they would be like oh but i don't want to do that and you're totally like, well, this, this is what totally. you need to do like this is the only rational thing and they're like well i don't i wouldn't want to do it at all if i had to do that And i was like i cannot help you then
1: yes i having cleaned out my hoarding parents home i can acknowledge Richard. that there were many illogical decisions yes,
0: and about. so many things do come down to that and i you know and i don't i don't think it's always a bad thing but i think it's like when you're making pragmatic decisions like that like a print run emotionally or you know i mean and we ran into this too. you know we had another book scam that was like overprinted and so we spent 2020 like giving away 800 of them and then it was no longer overstocked you know, and it was, like, and some of the staff were like, can't we just pulp them, you know, and you're like, well, yeah. we could, you know, like, we absolutely could, but, like, on the other hand, we could, like, give them to people who would read them, you know, and that's, you know, this has kind of been our approach, because it's like, you don't want to flood it, because then it becomes essentially unavailable, and, like, you know, it's like we get orders for it. It's not like it's at zero, but we're never you know, we know that we're
1: right. but in hindsight, you would completely have adjusted how you how many you had printed like if yeah, and you wouldn't advocate if you were doing consulting, you wouldn't advocate for someone to store damaged copies of an old book that we're essentially giving away because right. we love it
0: yeah okay right well in this case like we built our infrastructure to be able to do that in a practical sense so mm-hmm. that's i guess the other difference so like which you know and me and i think that is so this the value add here and this is how i've oh this is my methodology that like i made up um, like like most of my methodology is that when you give somebody like more books than they purchased that is like something that they think about and associate with us. And like, maybe not everybody is going to be like over the moon overjoyed about it, but they're like, that's something they're going to remember. Like, that's the kind of thing where like, you know, people are stoked about it. People are enthusiastic about it. You know, we, we can only do that obviously with things that are overstocked, but that's just like a much better use of resources is to like support the people that support us over, over, you know just destroying books which is like not a great you know use of resources either
1: right but it's something that you would advocate if it were yeah
0: if yeah, you needed, yeah exactly yeah it, in, in my defense
1: in my am, you're not on trial yeah i'm just asking yeah
0: scams print run was not decided on my watch so i just had to deal with the consequences but juggalo country it was the printer's error and so the printer discredited us for those books right so So you
1: have them for free
0: yeah and so then we were like oh that's weird because then we don't want to destroy them they didn't ask us to destroy them they recognized that they had screwed them up you know so you know six of one half dozen of the other and then you know and so that but that was kind of always been our approach to this matters like when we're overstocked on something we like move it into the giveaways and then move that out of inventory and you know get it out of the way and make space and then you know we we have an active oh yeah and i don't know if you don't if you know this or not analisa but like we have. i know an act nothing you know a few things but we have an active system where like we look at annual overstock and we look at what moves into giveaway what you know like what we need to look at you know consider remaindering and it's like there's about there's been essentially one book in the last five years and we could have seen it coming and then there was maybe one book two years before that So it's you know we're we're like the track record is pretty good, but it's mostly because we cut the print runs, you know. So,
1: thank you, thank you.
0: -hmm.
1: Yeah, and it wasn't me who asked the question. Just kidding. (laughs) So, so
0: longtime customers of Microcosm, I swear they know because sometimes they will be like, they will tell you which ones they already have (laughs) to not send those ones again, (laughs) which is really adorable. But, um. So, yeah, we like predetermine what is overstocked and then we put them on those piles and then those go out with the priority mail orders each day.
2: Lance says, Hmm. Do you find that if a book sells out of a printing, does that usually generate more buzz for the next printing or does it stop sales momentum?
0: Fantastic question, Lance. That you kind of, so it all depends on the book. So, like for a novel during its like months of release, so, if a book had been out for three months and you ran out of copies, you might kill the momentum entire i'm sorry stop the momentum entirely if it's a book that's like five years old, um you know you look at what you know is happening in practice so and then there's some a lot of buggy factors here that like obfuscate the situation. And the biggest one is that if we don't have copies of something, there's probably copies at wholesalers. So there's probably a way to get the book. But if a store has a special order, they may not be able to work that out. You know, or you know, like right now, like the Practical Witch is reprinting, and we're going to be out for about two weeks. It's not going to kill us, even though it's an annual and it's a ticking clock, but you know, it's like, we're going to get more, we're going to fill those wholesaler orders. There's probably some copies floating around because we just ran out, you know, probably yesterday or today. So it's, you know, it'll be fine. It's not going to kill the momentum. If we reprinted that book in December, the momentum would be dead. And, you know, and that's an extreme example because of, you know, it's a planner, but, you know, you you can see like analogs of that with other books like you know something if it's slowing down sometimes being out of it will actually create momentum like cuz it'll create demand like you'll see that for some books and then in other cases it'll you know people will kind of like not have had that much much interest in the first place so they'll just kind of walk away
2: um Kalen asks um, can we talk about Print on demand, uh, PTO is that print to order.
0: Yeah, print to order. And why order. we
2: don't, why we don't use it? No,
0: it's uh, print to order and print on demand. I but have bl- sales
2: people asking me almost every week why we this question, so I'm excited to hear.
0: Oh, okay. um So the reality is, it would make the sale pointless. So what we, cause all of our P and L's are based on the offset numbers. So if, and looking at print on demand, which is kind of a misnomer because especially these last few years, print on demand was apparently no faster than offset printing, but it comes at four times the price. So that essentially like makes that where we have no margin to pay for the costs of using it. You know, we can't pay the author. We can't pay ourselves. It's essentially like we're better off selling them a different book or waiting, you know. And, you know, we looked into it. We've looked into it with dozens of different, you know, we used to use it. And then we've quickly were like, this makes no sense. Like, you can't, you know, the only way it would make sense is if we built all of our systems on the assumption of using that and built all of our pricing like our cover prices on that instead of the way we do it now on the offset printing you know we could have it where the price was higher but we would need to do that from the launch because otherwise the reality is that people are going to like think the book is suddenly just more expensive and then cheaper again so Um, And we did it. We have a few titles that um, have gone both ways. We did a run of Biketopia that way. And then we were like, "Eh, it's better to, well, we kept, we kept the increased price, but we um, went back to offset because that just made so much more sense, you know, in the end that you're like, "The, the, you know, like the book has to support like the three-legged stool has to work, like the book has to support us as much as it supports the author and the store.
2: So like our policy of not really remaindering things, is that like mainly because of our emotional attachment to the books or is that because of our commitment to sustainability or is that a a marketing strategy or all of the above?
0: Well, I'm really being called out today, um, which I appreciate. You should always do that the uh, The principles of remaindering are built on the assumption that a book has no more life in it, you know. Whereas, like we almost never see that. I guess the classic we... bicycle coloring book would be a perfect example of why we don't remainder. So we published that book in twenty seventeen. It came out. Uh, it didn't sell very well. We would a normal publisher. Or I'm sorry, we're the normal publisher. An abnormal publisher <laughs> who is not as mainstream as we are would have remaindered everything left after a year, because you know we sold not, uh, you know I think we sold six hundred or eight hundred or something that first year, and um, our distributor sold almost none the second year, and then we started to see the returns, and you know, and and you know it was one of those books where I was like I knew there was an audience for it. So I knew that wasn't the right move, that we just weren't, you know, they were, they're going after, they're trying to put it in somewhere like Barnes and Noble or, you know, a place that it's just not quite right for. And so, you know, it was not until we took back our own distribution in 2019 that like we really started to sell that book, you know, 2020 really, that it really started to sell. And, you know, so we've sold more in the last two years or the last, you know, I don't know, say four years than the first four years that the book was in publication. You know, so it's a weird thing like that where if we had remaindered that book, that wouldn't have happened. And that, you know, harms sort of the life of the whole thing because you you can't really get a do over on something like that. You know, whereas, like, I know that's one of the ones that we're having to restock in Cleveland, you know, and it's not like it's selling gangbusters. And I'm sure if I thought about it for a minute, I could think of a better example where, like, you know, or, like, make your place, or make it last would be, like, the better example where it's, like, it did kind of crappy out of the gate. We normally would have remained at all those, but it was apparent that it was going to start moving. You I know.
2: know? I do want to add that we do, like, so these overstock books like the books we give away correct me if i'm wrong joe these are books that we have more than a 10 year supply of based on our current sales metrics is that right yeah and we'll Mm -hmm. give away like whatever the number is over 10 years um and then sometimes they bounce back we do also sell these books and a lot of what abby does is coming up with different ways to package these books either on kickstarter or in bundles so that they can kind of sell side by side with our more popular titles and hopefully build up more of an audience for those books
0: right yeah and that's yeah i mean and that's pretty much it so it's like one part marketing it's one part you know it's like it's like giving back to the fans but there are also cases where like people discover the book through that or they like you know those are those tend to be the photos that people post to social media when they like get their order and they're like look at all these other books i got you know and then that's when their friend is like oh whoa that book looks cool you know things like that are very real and so it's not yeah it's a it's tough to really like line it out into a simple singular thing because it's it's a it's a bigger multi-pronged strategy you know I, where I
2: i would say it also makes sense to keep the book in print because then we still have ebook rights and we can like you know when things come along like humble bundle or knock on wood book.io that book can have a new life in ebook
0: yeah
2: is that is that is that a legitimate consideration joe or am i making that
0: up there needs to be life in the first place for but no there's been cases where we've we've created a secondary life that like was how we like made money on the digital rights more than we did on the print rights. Cause you know, the print rights obviously are like the print run is the expensive part. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's like, and we've always done it this way. Um, You know, we've sold books on Remainder before, but you know, once you find out that it kind of destroys the life of that book, And you don't get that, you know, and, and traditional publishing is more built on the idea that you're only focused on what's new, which just doesn't make any sense because every publisher makes their money on their older books, not on their new books. So it's just like fundamentally broken that they're they're stuck in this like hype cycle of promoting books that like everybody knows are going to be forgotten in a year and most of them are going to be flops. know just by numbers so like you really need to nurture the back end you know
1: joe i want to record or rewind the recording did i just hear you say we've always done it this way (laughs) called out
0: burn see see look at that burn sick but but we you know we've we well We've actually, I guess it's not entirely true that we did. We started out this way, and then when we learned about remaindering, we were like, Oh, okay, we yeah. could do it that other way. And then we yeah. were like, Oh, no, the other way doesn't actually make any sense. Like, our way actually works better, you know, unless we're in a case where we're like, You know, we sold, we've remaindered books when we've been losing rights, and that's made sense. But, you know, other than that, when like the decision is made, You know it's because essentially like when you remainder the book you're also giving up the right to reprint that book in the future in most you don't have to
1: keep you don't have to keep you know 2500 on hand to keep retain the right like you could trim it down or something i'm just yeah um yeah
2: but what are the costs to keep 2500 on hand for us
0: mm. right yeah and that's how we've looked at it yeah so this has been and we've been very tidy like we haven't the only books that we've published since we opened the warehouse in cleveland that were overstocked were the um it was one of the i think it was the 2022 practical witch that was the and it's you know like considering how many we sold it's not severe so it's you know things like that, and you know, and obviously nobody's gonna like buy those on remainder because it's like two years old. But it's still, two years it's, ago. But we can sell those with the Kickstarter in every successive project. So, like in future years, we'll sell. You know, we'll sell down the box at a time. So it's not like a lost cause. And so we, you know, I guess like we're differently industrious been most people like we're and this is sort of how we've been so successful at like maintaining our back catalog
2: like what is our cost to warehouse this overstock compared to like what are the benefits of warehousing this
0: overstock in numbers my gym membership is (laughs) putting things where nobody you know where they're out of the way and you know i rearranged the warehouse that was my i i like many people i i I put on some pounds at the beginning of covid and then i rearranged the warehouse three times and then i found that pretty quickly that problem was no longer a problem and so um and that's like incredibly rigorous obviously like i moved thousands of boxes three times but um the purpose of that project was to make it so that we weren't using real estate and we weren't incurring cost. So really the only time that hurts us is that is when we have essentially dead stock in Cleveland because the the way the bays and the layouts are set up in Portland now it's designed to be inobtrusive. So you'll have you'll have your stack of title, you have your stack of title and then those have like fairly successive rapid turns. So the only time you really get into trouble is when you have these just like outrageous quantities using up valuable space. So I just made it so they're never in valuable space. They're, you know, in the rafters, you know. And so we get down a box at a time, and that's easy. When we got quotes from Simon and Schuster for like what it would cost for them to do our fulfillment and they were charging about double what we currently pay doing it ourselves but that you know and and that was pretty consistent too where like the traditional wisdom is about a penny and a half per month per book so you know that's 18 cents per book per year and ours was about half of that you know if we were you know, had the books on a pallet in a place that was like prime real estate. So, you know, as it is, it's, you know, the only real cost is like, if it's in the way, if we need to move it, if it's like, you know, obscuring something else that's important. So that's the other way that we eliminated that cost. Maybe not entirely, because it's like, you know, on some level, like, you know, you can always figure out a way to use space. But you know where it's not space that would otherwise be used. So that's my like roundabout way of saying that it's like probably like a sixteenth of a penny per book per year would be like my rough estimate.
2: Joe, do you have an overstock report for our published titles for twenty twenty three yet?
0: Of course I do. What kind of? Would you share it with the class? Oh, um, sure. (laughs) And (laughs) you can see what goes on around here. Can you Um, tell him at the back of
1: the class causing problems?
0: (laughs) What's new? Um, you can, yeah, the, the real shocker on there was that there were no new titles added to the Overstock report this year, which I would, I was like, that's wild. Like, how did that you know and it might for what it's emotional my first thought was oh that's incorrect you know (laughs) like oh we'll have to keep probing on that until we figure out which ones they are and then we're like oh no we like don't have 2023 overstock books that we published which was kind of but you just if you
1: just like you just did like you just acknowledge if you say oh that you know what that's actually an emotional decision like that makes it like comforting or like more human to know like if you're just like also you know like that's why we we did it like just being honest amongst ourselves i think that helps you know yeah like yeah i've done that a lot today that's helpful to know mm-hmm.
0: what you're yeah.
1: thinking is
0: because well i mean you have to rationalize it in some way so the honest way is probably the best way to do it
1: I- much more preferable than... So I guess my question,
2: Joe, is when are we going to run out of 10 years or more overstocked published titles to send out in priority mail envelopes?
0: So we go through about um, three cartons a week, so that's our rate of consumption. Fortunately, and then, you know, obviously, like some books, it's 176 to a carton, some books, it's 20 to a carton, so let's operate on, like, the median not the mean so let's assume like 40 per carton and so you'll have um let's see we had uh it was 120 restock cartons in total the last time i ran it which would have been a year ago so you know we'll we have like two more years we could total each Right, so twenty, yeah, twenty twenty six, really will be our time, and you know, and in in like some other things, yeah. I guess it's probable that by twenty twenty six, we'll have published one more dud, which is okay. Last, you know, our greatest dud was Katrina Sandcastle's, and that was a full ten years ago now. So, um, but those are we're down to like the last bit of the giveaways on those. So, like, we've and uh I've had customers complain that they've gotten that book for free multiple times but you know we paid for it it's like it's in the black we just don't need them around here anymore so
2: can you update us about older books that are still haven't er earned earned out
0: um there's three uh Riot Woman will earn out this year for certain it's about three hundred dollars in the red um, so mm, probably not this month but probably in February and then it's just Chocolatology which is about 1800 in the hole and then it's Amika's World which is I don't know 3000 in the hole maybe let me take a look um, but yeah it's really just those three or no it's about 4300 in the hole so um, oh, Amica. So I have,
2: I have asked for an update about how Amika is doing. By the way, but I haven't heard back yet.
0: Mm-hmm. So that's, um, but all three like, of those were so much more dialed in on all these systems now. I mean, I swear we acquired Riot Woman before we acquired Amika's World or Chocolatology. So, you know, like all three of those were really acquisitions problems rather than, or should I say, mistakes rather than, you know, like any other kind of issue you know because it's like ultimately no matter what anybody else does or chooses we're ultimately responsible for our choices so there's some emotional truth thanks for joining us once again
2: Please send your questions to podcast at microcosmpublishing.com so we can answer them on future episodes.
0: And please give us five stars on iTunes and everywhere else that podcasts are reviewed.
2: You can find us on the internet at microcosm.pub.
0: On Twitter at microcosm.
2: On Facebook at microcosm publishing.
0: On Instagram at microcosm underscore pub. And here in Portland, Oregon on North Williams Avenue. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful week.